You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. As you're turning to the book of Acts, the question I just want to put in your mind is this. Have you ever experienced something you know, had an encounter, something, an event take place that you really weren't sure what to make of it. I'm talking about that experience of being confused or uncertain about how this particular encounter or event fits alongside everything else you've ever experienced or encountered before in your life. If you've ever had that sort of, that, that sort of feeling, in the story of the Christian faith, there's actually one such equivalent event, and it's the ascension of Jesus Christ. The moment long after the resurrection, when Jesus ascended to heaven, right before the very eyes of his disciples. The ascension of Christ. It's right there in our Bibles. And yet, we never really talk about it. Taking place 40 days after Christ's resurrection, Jesus' ascension is hardly remembered. In fact, I don't know if you've been counting since Easter, but this Thursday, May 30th, is actually the 40th day of Easter. So it's noted as Ascension Day on the church calendar, when the church used to count the days, count, make, count time for us, keep time for us. But you'll notice in your bulletin, you would notice in the announcements, we're not having a special worship service that day. I mean, in fact, has, have any of you ever been to an Ascension Day service? Show of hands. Right, okay, exactly. If I didn't bring it up this morning, the remembrance of this event would have come and gone And we would not have been the wiser for it. And yet, I don't know if you've ever caught this, but this is recorded as one of the essential faith statements of the church in testimonies like the Apostles' Creed. If you've ever heard us say the Apostles' Creed, I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty. This is one of the essential faith statements in our creeds, in our statements of belief as the church. So clearly, the ascension of Christ is a significant, even though it's an underappreciated event in the life of Jesus. Still in saying that, and though you may not even realize it, that you've repeated that whenever you've said the creed, this moment, I imagine most of us would have difficulty explaining why it matters. Today we're going to learn the answer to that question. Together, we are going to come to appreciate how the ascension of Christ fits into the wider story of the gospel. And at the same time, in so doing, we will close out this sermon series on generosity on becoming a more than generous people like God is toward us. Now, if you didn't relate earlier to my opening question, maybe you do right now. Maybe you're asking yourself, what could the ascension of Jesus possibly have to do with becoming a gracious giver like God created us to be? And we're going to get there soon enough. For now, Let's read about this moment in the life of Jesus, and then we're going to briefly consider what it means. So if you have those Bibles open, Acts chapter 1, starting right in verse 1, and it reads, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. 
He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking up intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is a bridge moment of sorts. The book of Acts, if you didn't remember this, is written by Luke, the author of the gospel with the same name. And that's the former book that he's referring to in this opening line. Luke, remember, was not one of the original 12 disciples. He was a later follower of Jesus who did a little investigative reporting on his own to confirm all the teachings in the stories, to share the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ with Theophilus. And that's an interesting name. Theophilus means lover of God. And so this could either refer to a single specific person with that name, or given the nature of this name, Luke could be speaking in a general manner, a general name that's addressing all curious and would-be believers and followers of Jesus. So what happens here is a bridge moment. Because the thing is, if you were to turn to the end of Luke's gospel, you would notice that Luke ends his gospel with this scene we just read and then begins the book of Acts with the very same moment. So right from the start, what we learn is what happens here is the connection between what has already happened and what is about to happen and what has already happened. Let's briefly talk about that. After three days of lifelessness in a cold, dark grave, not from being murdered, but from willingly offering himself into our hands, his life not taken from him, but given to us for the forgiveness of our sin, our rejection and our rebellion against our creator God, Jesus rises from the tomb and conquers death, the ultimate consequence of our sin and the greatest obstacle to the life we were always meant to live with God. The joyous declaration that Christ is risen was not based on any illusions or wishful thinking. No, as Luke specifically shares with us here, this good news is based solidly and squarely on the presence of Jesus Christ himself, who for, more, for 40 days after defeating death continued to show his followers he was alive through many convincing proofs. Think about that. For over a month, the first disciples experienced firsthand the life-changing, life-clarifying, ongoing reality of the kingdom of God through Christ. That's where they'd been. But now, something was about to happen. What's coming next? Jesus is clear. The gift long promised by our Heavenly Father, the arrival of a friend, a comforter, a 
counselor that we were told about by Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry, told to anticipate the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, after Jesus says this, notice the disciples sort of blow right past this news and instead want to talk more about the kingdom. But Jesus immediately recenters their focus away from the details of God's reign that we are not privy to know. And instead, Jesus gives them, and by extension us, a commission, a great commission. As the next slide comes up on the screen, these are the very same instructions from Jesus recorded at the end of Matthew's gospel. So from comparing this account in Acts and the account of the gospel in Matthew, what becomes clear is that Jesus repeated this commission more than once to his disciples during the 40 days he was with them. And this makes sense because here in Acts, at this moment, when Jesus gives them this commission, none of the disciples at all seem surprised by these instructions. I mean, no one raises their hand and asks a question about their marching orders. I'm sorry, excuse me, could you clarify that? And Jesus doesn't seem to be overly concerned about needing to clarify or elaborate on what he said. Instead, as you read, Jesus, before the no doubt shocked and probably saddened gaze of his disciples, bodily ascends into heaven, eventually becoming hidden from their sight by the clouds. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this, either at the end of Luke or in the beginning of the book of Acts, this is where I go, well, what was that like? Right? I mean, what was that like? And if you've ever watched a film version of Luke's gospel or the book of Acts, it's quite interesting and oftentimes unintentionally comical to see how this gets portrayed visually. I mean, based on the limited description Luke gives us, it's hard to actually picture this moment. And maybe this is one of the reasons we tend to overlook this part of the story of Jesus, right? I mean, it defies logic. It sounds implausible. We can get so stuck on the physics of the whole thing. We can get so caught up in the geography of this scene. You know, where exactly is heaven? Like, where did something open up? The significance of Jesus' ascension, though, is not about the logistics of how it happened, but rather why it happened and what it means. So let's go there. This shouldn't have been a surprise for the disciples. We went through the Gospel of John prior to and leading up to Easter Sunday. We've been going through the Gospel of John prior to this sermon series. And you might remember, back in the upper room in John chapter 16, Jesus specifically told them he was going to return to his heavenly Father. If you were to go back and look at those scriptures, many of us read those and we just think that Jesus is preparing them for him going to the cross. And in the larger teaching, he does do that. But if you read carefully parts of what Jesus talks about in John chapter 16, he's actually preparing them not just for the cross, but for his ascension. We know this because Jesus spoke specifically of what would happen, of what could only happen, after he returned to the Father. And what was that? The pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, happened 10 days after this moment, 10 days later on what is called Pentecost. So this was all part of the divine plan. Jesus departs, and the Holy Spirit arrives. At the most basic level, this is why this happened. But there's more to it, of course. The ascension of Christ marks the pinnacle of Jesus's earthly ministry. This is a royal scene. This is about Jesus's coronation as king of kings. Don't get me wrong, Jesus rising from the grave 
is the declaration of his victory over sin and death, no doubt. But Jesus ascending into heaven is the affirmation of Christ's rule and reign over all creation. This is the definitive statement that Jesus is not just our Savior. Absolutely, that is what he is. But it's also the statement that Jesus is our Lord. That Jesus is not only from God, but that Jesus is God. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, and if you haven't given much thought to the ascension, why would you? But without the ascension, the gospel isn't complete. Christmas isn't Christmas, and Easter isn't as glorious as we claim it to be. I mean, think about it. After all, the reason we claim Jesus descended from eternal glory and became God incarnate, God in the flesh, is because the first disciples witnessed Jesus return home, back from the place, from the glory from which he came. This history-making story of the gospel that began with the Son of God being born of a virgin descending to earth ends with the Son of God being born from the dead and ascending to heaven. In other words, the ascension clarifies the fullness of what the resurrection means. The ascension reinforces that life after the resurrection is not simply a a return to the way things were before. Not at all. Jesus entered into a broken world, a life marked by the promise of a hope yet unrealized. As Jesus leaves this world, this world is forever changed by the realized hope of a promise of new life, full, abundant, everlasting life, made ready and available to everyone, to anyone who looks to him, who abides in him, who follows his lead. The world is changed because now Jesus is its enthroned Lord. Jesus' ascension affirms once and for all, no Caesar, no other would-be ruler of this world, not any of the powers or pursuits that vie for control of our lives should lord over us. Christ alone is Lord. Salvation and new life are found in no other name, in no other relationship. The world is no longer falling apart because Christ has repaired the breach that we built through our rejection and rebellion against our Creator. The ascension means there is no loss that cannot be restored, for there is nothing that is so far gone that it is beyond the reach of our King. All things are being made new into a new creation by the one who proved through his ascension that he reigns over life and death and all the earth. This is why the ascension of Christ matters. But this is not all that it means. There is one thing more. Jesus, in ascending to heaven, astoundingly, incredibly, lives beyond his earthly existence through you and me. We are the legacy that Jesus leaves behind with Christ's ascension. And then just a couple of days later, the arrival of Pentecost, we become the body of Christ. That language in scripture is intentional. Leaving us with a great commission, Jesus passes the baton to us to continue to sow the seeds of salvation he first cast upon this earth to harvest the fruit of the kingdom of God that Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, 
has established. Many of us do not receive this news of Jesus passing the baton to us very well. Many of us freak out about this. We perceive this great commission Jesus gives to us to go and make disciples, to teach others what Jesus taught us, to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to reach out for Christ to the ends of the earth. And we freak out because we're like, man, that's far beyond my capability. That's far beyond our capacity. That's way bigger than any of us. And make no mistake, it is. All of it, beyond us, all of us together. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't just, doesn't just do all the heavy lifting, get the ball rolling in terms of turning this world around and then exit stage right, leaving us responsible for finishing what he started. Hear this, church. Jesus doesn't make us responsible for the Great Commission. Jesus never tells us to finish what he started. This is subtle but significant. Jesus calls us to be responsive to the Great Commission. Jesus instructs us to share the finished work he has already accomplished. Jesus is definitive in saying it's done, it's finished. We're not finishing what Jesus started. It's already taken care of. We are called to share the finished work that Jesus has done. Jesus never says, hey, you know what? The Great Commission, this whole thing, it's riding on you. It's you or nothing, man. We're not responsible for the Great Commission. We're called to be responsive to the Great Commission. We are called to respond to what Jesus has done, to share who Jesus is and what he continues to do. And yet still some of us freak out because we're like, okay, man, but even that, our responsiveness to this, it's, it, it's too much. I, I, it's too much. I don't, well, you know, what, it's too much responsibility. It's too much initiative. It's too much power. We don't have that kind of initiative. We don't have that kind of power. Pay attention to the story, people, because even our responsiveness is not dependent upon our own initiative and power. Notice, did you catch it? Just before Jesus departs, the first command he gives to his disciples was to wait and do nothing. Wait and do nothing until what? Until they received the power of the Holy Spirit. Our responsiveness to the Great Commission depends not on our initiative. It doesn't depend on our wisdom. It doesn't depend on our strength. It doesn't depend on our power. We are empowered to share the gospel. We are empowered to become witnesses for Christ, to make disciples, to advance the kingdom of God through the empowerment of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. It's even better than that. Jesus doesn't leave us on our own to figure out how to use the power of the Spirit to fulfill the work that he's called us to do. It's not like we've got this power and it's like, okay, where's, well, what, what's the first step we take? What are we supposed to be doing with all this power? Jesus doesn't leave us with the power of the Holy Spirit without some direction. Enliven with the Holy Spirit, the specific posture and actions we are to take are shaped by following in the footsteps of Jesus. We are animated by the Spirit to encounter others, to engage the world like Christ did, following his example. What does that mean? It's not that hard. Jesus forgave, so we forgive. Jesus loved unconditionally through the power of the Spirit. We love unconditionally. Jesus healed the wounded. And again, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we heal the hurting too. Jesus served 
protecting, defending, liberating, encouraging, even resurrecting the dead. And so through the power of the Spirit, we protect and defend the vulnerable and the abused. We liberate the imprisoned. We encourage the struggling. And yes, we resurrect the lost and the forsaken too. Again, if you're still hearing this, fulfilling the Great Commission is not something we can do. It's not something we can do. Fulfilling the Great Commission is something God dares to do through us. God dares to do through us. This more than generous God empowers, equips, and resources us to become the legacy he leaves behind, the body of Christ. A great follower of Jesus named Teresa of Avila once expressed it this way, Christ has no body on earth now but yours. No hands but yours. No feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which to look at Christ's compassion to the world. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. And yours are the hands with which he is to bless us now. This is a beautiful prayer, but if we're still trapped in that orient, one way of hearing this, that one orientation, this is starting to freak us out again. So I'm going to repeat something I've said to just underscore this one more time. Jesus isn't depending upon us to accomplish his mission of reclaiming and restoring this world. Jesus isn't depending upon you or me to make all things new. The God who can create out of nothing has no problem creating out of the nothing that we possibly do. This isn't about depending upon us. What it is about, though, which is no less shocking, no less awe-inspiring, is while Jesus isn't depending upon us, Jesus is placing the weight of his reputation, the representation of all his work and ongoing reign, the reflection of his character. Jesus is placing all of that in our hands and feet, in our words and actions, in our decisions and their outcomes. That's mind-blowing, man. That doesn't drive you to your knees. I don't know what will. That God doesn't depend on us, but God entrusts us with all of it. And that, that means the question before us, every moment of every day until Jesus returns or calls us home is this. Are we living for ourselves? Or are we living beyond ourselves? If we are the legacy Jesus leaves behind. What sort of impact are we making for Christ and his kingdom? The end of this story is really kind of funny, but it's also kind of sad, right? And it's important for us to not just skip past this because most of us are like the disciples at the end of this story. We are still looking up instead of moving out. We are gazing into heaven Lifting up our voices in praise towards Jesus, but not reaching out beyond our pew to actually follow him. By going into the world, by going right next door, by going just across the street, by going only around the block to be him, to be Christ to another person, particularly a person in need. Get ready for it. But late breaking news flash, church. Late breaking news flash. Jesus never told us to praise him. Search the scriptures. Look through it all. Paul tells us, Peter tells us, 
John tells us Jesus never tells us to praise him. And we are good at praising him. We can sing. We can pray. We can raise our hands. We can play it in the car. We can dance in our house. We can praise, praise, praise. Get ready for it. Praising is great, but God doesn't need your praise. God doesn't need your praise. God isn't like, man, I was kind of getting a little low. I was kind of starting to feel down about myself, starting to doubt if I was the creator of the universe. Really glad you're pumping it up because I needed that today. Woo, that shot in the arm. Jesus never tells us to praise him. And that's not saying Pastor Chris goes, we don't have to praise Jesus anymore because Jesus never said it. That's not what I'm saying. Jesus never told us to praise him. What I'm getting at is what did Jesus tell us to do? Jesus definitely told us, simply told us to follow him. You can pray Jesus all the live long day. God doesn't need that. Great, good, do it, absolutely. Celebrate, party, praise. What God desires, what God wants is not your praise. What God desires, what God wants is your hands and your feet, your body and your soul. What God wants is for you to follow him. Many of us are standing here, standing still, because just like the first disciples who keep searching the sky for where Jesus was, we're waiting for another word from Christ. We're waiting for a new revelation of our calling, some fresh clarification of our purpose. My friends, Jesus has been more than generous in giving us everything we need already. He's given us our instructions for living. He's given us the empowerment we need to engage those around us. Christ has even left us the imprint of his footsteps to follow. One act of goodness and mercy, one word of kindness and peace, one offer of hospitality and grace, one humble step of love and justice at a time. Angels are standing before us, just like they did once before the first disciples, asking us, follower of Jesus, why are you still standing in the same place? Get up moving already. I want you to take out a piece of paper. And there should be one if you're not writing down sermon notes. That sermon note page is pretty much blank. Take out a piece of paper. Keep in mind, I can see you if you're not doing this. I'm just going to keep repeating it. <laughs> say it. You say that, and every, some people are like, get to write for it, and other people are like, take out a piece of paper. A pen, a pencil. We've got some writing implements there. And on one end of that piece of paper, I want you to write down the date of your birth. One end of that piece of paper, I want you to write down the date of your birth. Then put a dash. That dash will be pretty long. you got a picture up there, a visual aid. All the way on the other end of the paper, I want you to jot down a question mark. That question mark, by the way, represents your DOD, the date of your death. To you, to me, and everyone else but God, it remains unknown. You done it? What you have before you, what we have before us, is a timeline of our existence on this side of eternity. If we pay attention at all to how we live our lives, and that's not necessarily a given, but if we pay attention at all to how we live our lives, we focus on the dash. So often, all we ever think about are points of time along the dash. Most of us are so caught up in the now, right? what's right in front of us, what we have to do today, we think little, if at all, about tomorrow. And if we do think about tomorrow, it kind of looks like this. It's about getting to a particular point in our life. 
graduation, first job, perhaps getting married, maybe having kids, owning a home, etc. And somewhere along the way, if we really plan ahead, our focus is getting ahead of the end of the dash. You know, we say something like, oh man, I can't wait to get here to this point in my life right before the question mark. And I'm going to save, 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 save so I can really enjoy this part of my life right here. If we're thinking ahead at all, we're consumed by this point in time. And we're hoping when we get there to travel and eat well and live comfortably. Most of us never focus much. Don't invest all that much time, all that much of our attention in terms of what comes after the dash. What's on the other side of this life? My friends, for those of us in Christ, the dash represents our time here on this side of everlasting life. But in the span of eternity, the dash and all the points we isolate along it are but a blip on the radar. 90 to 100 years possibly and measured against the duration of human history or the age of creation itself, that dash is a drop in the bucket. Blink and you might miss it. But our existence, our life in Christ is more than just a couple of decades. You know that, right? You believe that, don't you? In Christ, this life isn't the grand finale. In Christ, this life is our preparation for what comes next, for eternity. Throughout this series, you've heard it again and again. Jesus teaches us what we get to take with us from this life into the next. All that matters on this little dash is what we do with what we have been given in Christ. The treasures we store up in heaven, not the creature comforts we amass in this short period of our existence. It's the relationships, right? It's the relationships forged through the love of Jesus and seasoned with the grace of the kingdom that endure forever. Not all the money we've earned, not all the titles we've held, the achievements we have accomplished, or even all the amazing trips we took. Your legacy isn't something for you to think about later in life. And I'm speaking to you at whatever part of the spectrum you're on. For the young people here, your legacy isn't for something for you to wait for later in your life when you get established. And for those of us who've had some life under our belt, some time, your legacy isn't something you're still waiting to start thinking about. Our legacy isn't something for us to think about later in life. Our legacy is something we have been given the moment we receive Christ. Our legacy is something we are given the moment we have received Christ. That means whatever your age, wherever you are in life, if you know Jesus, if you profess to follow him, the building materials of your legacy, the empowerment, the example, the resources you need already have been given to you by Jesus. The question is, are we living for ourselves or are we living beyond ourselves through him? It's Memorial Day weekend, right? This is a time set apart for remembering those who gave their lives in defense of this country, 
those who gave of themselves for the sake of others. My friends, to live for Christ, to live in Christ, to live through Christ, to live with Christ is to live beyond ourselves. It's to give of ourselves for the sake of others. It is to live out of the love, the grace, the faith, the hope we have been given thanks to Jesus. And unless we think seriously, unless we stop and reflect about the kind of legacy we are developing, it is likely that we are going to leave nothing worth inheriting behind us. And our legacy in Christ is to leave this world better than we found it. Our legacy in Christ is to leave the people we encounter better, more loved, more graced, more blessed than we found them. Our legacy is to be more than generous, dedicating the resources we have been given, the time we have been given, the wealth we have been given, the skills we have been given, giving our very selves to the work of the harvest of the kingdom of God. You still have that piece of paper? Look at it. If you don't, take it out again. Take out that piece of paper, and this is what I want you to do. Somewhere along that dash that you created, before the question mark, write down today's date. Somewhere along that line, before the question mark, write down today's date. In the space to the left of today's date, this way, ask yourself, in the space to the left of today's date, ask yourself, how would Jesus summarize your work and investments up until now? To the left, how would others measure the impact of your life so far? How would you be remembered? How would you write your own eulogy if this was all the time you had? My friends, to the left is the life you've lived already. It is what it is. And if it's been about the Lord's business, you can continue to build on that legacy. If instead you've been about your own business, take comfort, be encouraged. Forgiveness is real. Forgiveness in Christ is everlasting. Grace is true. If you've been about your own business, do not be afraid. You can't change where you've been. But through the forgiveness and grace of God, you can change what you continue to be about. To the right of today's date is the life you have left on this side of eternity. It could be a day. It might be a week or a month, a year, decades to come. And I'm not going to ask you as you look to the right, I'm not going to ask you what are you going to do with the rest of the time you have left. I'm not going to ask you that question. What I am going to ask you, what I want you to do, is I want you to ask the Holy Spirit right here, right now, as you look at the right side, what does Jesus seek to do in and through you with the time he has given you? Totally different question. Changes everything. Changes what you're about, changes what you're pursuing, changes what matters, changes what you're stressing about, changes what you pride yourself on. Totally different question. 
And as you look at that right side, and, and if you're really not getting angry, annoyed, afraid, and truly letting the Spirit begin to speak, and it's not just all going to happen here. There's a seed that's being planted that's going to bear some fruit if you let it. If you step out of the way, the Spirit is going to bring fruit out of this question. And part of that fruit's going to come from thinking about this. What if God's reign became fully realized in the spaces and places where you live? What if God's reign, the love, the grace, the truth of Jesus Christ became fully manifest, realized in that classroom that you sit in every day? In that office you occupy five days, six days out of the week? In that home that you live in, that you invite others in, what would God's reign, what would the love, grace, and Jesus Christ look like fully realized in that business dealing you have on the table right now? In, that the, in the challenge of that diagnosis you're facing, in the thick of that conflict that you just keep thinking about, what would the reign of God fully realized, the love, grace, and truth of Jesus Christ look like in the face of that injustice you've suffered, in the pain of that loss that you are still grieving? What would the grace of God, the truth, the love of Jesus Christ fully realized look like in the midst of every relationship you have. If God's reign were to be fully realized in the spaces where we live, what would be different? How would you become different? Are you going to keep looking towards the sky? Are you going to keep looking towards the horizon, fixated and obsessing about all those points along the dash? Or are you going to start living the answer to the question mark at the end of that piece of paper, living beyond yourself, living for Christ, living for eternity? Because, beloved, we are called not just to be disciples. We are called to be apostles. And that word apostles means sent ones. We are called to be the ones who are sent to go into the world to cultivate the presence of Jesus and carry the glory of God. As Jesus was sent, Jesus now sends us into the world. And the world is a big place, but the world is as small as the neighbor next door, the person across the street, what's right around the corner. Jesus calls us into the world. He sends us to be cultivators of his kingdom. In coming into our lives, Christ has revealed to us, the blinders are off, right? Our eyes are open. In coming into our lives, Christ has revealed to us the way things are supposed to be. The people we can become. And through the cross, the resurrection, and yes, the ascension of Jesus, this world is changing. We are being transformed by love, grace, and truth. Christ hasn't just rescued us. Please hear that today. Jesus didn't just save you. Christ has commissioned us to share this gospel with all the world. And through his spirit, Jesus has empowered us for this work. By his example, Christ has left us his footsteps to follow in embodying his presence to others. This is not a mission given to a select few, not just to those who wear a robe, have a Bible, or have the name pastor next to their name, or missionary. This is a mission given to all believers. Therefore, together, all of us, we are the legacy Jesus leaves behind. We are crazily, astoundingly, incredibly, mind-blowingly, we are the body of Christ. Therefore, let's live beyond ourselves. 
by extending the life and love, the hope and the peace, the mercy and the justice of the kingdom of God by taking all that Jesus gives us and offering it all back to him by being more than generous toward each other.